my headset just made a kind of weird be- beeping noise, almost as if to say, this is being recorded. Oh, really? I thought it was like yeah. a low battery thing straight away. So we'd have to plow through the films within five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, Kino Kingdom 17, this one. Uh, I did actually check and keep count. You can yeah. uh, have a goosey at uh, themenwhotalk.podbean.com. It's got all the past episodes on there for this and State of Play, our games podcast. But this week, for me, for Kino Kingdom, Rupert, has been a bit of a, 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 qu- a quietish one. I've been more gamey than filmy, so I've only got four new films, aside from two you've seen, Madhouse and Dead Silence. Oh, which yeah. Briefly gloss over, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so for me, um, the only films I've got are. Let me just have a quick goosey. So, obviously, Madhouse, Dead Silence, Wishmaster, Bright, Darkman, and The Evil from uh, 1978, starring none other than Richard Crenna, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm I um I'm just tidying up a few that I didn't get a chance to go through last time, and plus a few more. So I've got eight in total, all horrors again, obviously. Oh, really? Uh, nice. That's good. Yeah. It's kind of a Halloween special then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's Halloween month. Uh, it's my Christmas. Um, so, yeah, I've got American Mary, Ghostbusters 2, Orphan, Summer of 84, A Perfect Getaway, The Changeling, VHS, and the Adams family. Oh, nice! There's some. Mm. Um, is there another remake of the Adams family coming out? The TV there show? was a. There was an animated feature film last year, I think. Oh, okay. But you, you're talking about the proper one, Barry's on a platform. Yes, yes, yes. We're, which obviously spawned one of the most difficult platform games ever made on the uh, 16-bit yeah. system. The one where every every world is a slippy, slidey ice world. Yeah, Gomez's shoes are just covered in goose fat. <laughs> everywhere he goes, everywhere he goes, he skids more than me when I'm watching a horror film. Um, so I have managed, obviously, before we kick off, um, I'll let you go. Well, I, actually, I'll go first because I've got the two. I'll briefly chat about Madhouse and Dead Silence, and then you can take over because I've only got four. But okay. before that happens, Rupert, <clears throat> I've obviously just got to say a few words from our sponsor. Um oh, good today if that's... they're really rolling in aren't they these sponsors weird. yeah and they, like they, a new they, one every time it's yeah it's weird so they roll in perfectly timed to be a new one each week it's bizarre it's almost like it's um almost like they're forged in some way but obviously they're not because that would be silly <clears throat> so this episode we are sponsored by tina turner turns up to turn up your turn up turn up tonight are your turnips looking a bit sad? Are you only harvesting a few from each crop? Is your soil less healthy and fruitful than Jim Davidson's entire hate-filled and thankfully finished career? Well, panic no more. For a fee that has been described as, frankly, eye-watering by The Telegraph, you can see Tina Turner's gardening know-how in action as Tina Turner turns up to turn up your turnip turnout tonight. Since largely retiring from showbiz, Tina Turner has been in a big spooky castle, mixing all bubbling potions and that. <laughs> After years of research, she has discovered a magic potion that can make even the most unworkable soil into a treasure trove of enormous turnips. So what are you waiting for? Contact us at Tina Turner turns up to turn up your turnip turnout tonight and book a slot. Legal disclaimer. 
Despite the relatively jovial tone of this advertisement, the actual process and event of Tina Turner bringing life to your turnip crop is a dismal and shocking affair. Whilst the content of the flask that Tina Turner turn, tips into your soul is harmless and instant enough, the ritual that she demands around it is anything but. An orgy of violence, dark offerings and blood, you'll honestly be expecting Pinhead to arrive as you weep through the sheets of stinging rain brought down by Tina Turner herself as part of this darkest of celebrations. Be assured, your turnips will grow as your faith in the inherent goodness of humanity withers like Roy Chubby Brown's benefit to society. So, yeah, that's um, today we're sponsored by Tina Turner. Turns up to turn up your turnip, turn up tonight.co.uk. So, if uh, you know, if you're having yeah. trouble with your props, jump on it. That was amazing. I would say that that was simply the best, actually. All right, let's move on to the films then. Right then. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to insert a clip. I'm gonna have to go to like freesound.org and say like and type in the opposite of joy <laughs> and just see what sound it gives me. And I'll insert it after you make that simply the best joke. By the way, the um the if it's um if I type in the opposite of joy and it just comes up with a gif of my father turning to look at me. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, that's simply the best. Whenever I think of Tina Turner, I just reminded of how bored the keyboardist must have been during that song recording because it's just bomb, bomb, bomb. He may as well have kicked all the other keys off his keyboard in all fairness. Just have that one. Yeah. I venture that they just use a sequencer to repeat the notes. I'm just going to put it out there. Well, because it was in the 80s. <laughs> well, I don't want to point any fingers at any particular decades, but yes, specifically <laughs> because it's the 80s. <laughs> yes, specifically and certainly because of that very reason. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, on your uh, very good recommendations from, from last week, uh, last time, sorry, I watched Madhouse and Dead Silence. Good and work. I really liked them, really yeah. liked them. I watched Madhouse first and I liked, like you said, it was just... It was just like a, you know, those films uh, in the 70s and 80s where they just seem a little bit balmy, like, yes, like they weren't too closely scrutinized when they were being made. And you get the sense that it, there was some stuff they just kind of did on the fly and there wasn't like a load of producers on set. Mm -hmm. It just seemed really loose. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed yeah. that. Because there is a tendency, you know, especially nowadays, you, you can have like a low budget horror or something like that. But there's often still this sense that it's kind of a little bit made by committee, that it, it seems a little bit sanitized in some way, a little bit cleaned up, a little bit tidy, a little bit neat. And that film is not <laughs> neat. It's bizarre and a little bit shoddy, but brilliant and weird. <laughs> I did enjoy it. And Dead Silence, yeah, it does tip me because in my head, Donnie Wahlberg was the main character. He's not. It He's does not. it does tickle me um, how he just, like you say, just rocks up. And says, <laughs> says oh, yeah, I just, uh, I just noticed I parked my car outside, went in to get a coffee, saw you through the window, and now I've come out and my window's smashed and you're on the brick. Um, <laughs> But, but I'm not going to arrest you. I'm going to I'm going to let you off this time and next time and the uh, next four times. It, it does tickle me actually that that whole thing where he he just turns up. Uh, uh, who's who's the main guy in the film? I've got Ryan Quantin. We just turns up like in in the motel next to him, and I thought surely mm. surely right you can't just say to your captain, oh that guy has the Ryan Quantin who I'm after is a suspect. I've told him not to leave the city, and he has. 
So instead of like getting a bail bondsman in there or someone to do that part of the job, which clearly isn't like a detective's job, he just says, right, I'm going to take the rest of the couple of days off work and I'm just going to follow him, re- yeah. re- reasonably follow him. And the captain's like, well, what? Surely this you going to arrest him or anything? No, no. <laughs> Not even taken by cuffs, sir. <laughs> just, just do you want to slap my wrist if I try to arrest him? Yeah, and he just kind of follows him around. And there's a little montage as well where the bit you mentioned where he says, oh... Uh, you went to the, you went to the graveyard, did you? And, uh, and yeah. dug up all the graves. <laughs> all the graves, and then it does this like sort of montage to Donnie Wahlberg digging up all the graves again and opening them all and standing there looking perplexed. And I thought, there's a hundred and one graves. You specifically <laughs> mentioned a hundred and one doors been buried. So that's a hundred and one graves dug up. He would have been cream crackered after <laughs> that. Uh, it tickled me. Yeah. So if he, yeah. Me. I mean, if uh, he was obviously following him, so he could have gone. Sort of confronted him at the graveyard, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. But anyway, it is a good film, but it's very silly. Yes. Yes. Very silly. Very fun. The thing is, though, Dead Sons, I reckon I could watch that again in a couple of years. Oh, yeah. Easily. Because it is, yeah. it never gets like even like all these movies get ridiculous at the end, but it's got quite an amusing, quite disgusting twist in it. Plus, then at the end it just goes like into turns into this weird like buddy cop thing which is pretty cool so yeah i enjoyed that um i forgot as well really quickly while i type this in before you start that i've uh, got another film as well called i am vengeance retaliation that i forgot to write down that i'm going to cover as well i am vengeance colon retaliation that is right so hang on are they retaliating against vengeance um well, well, I suppose the, if you imagine the man is like vengeance, right? No, actually, yeah. Even if Stu Barrett, the star, was vengeance, it's like I am vengeance retaliation. There's retaliation against Vinnie Jones in it, but that probably doesn't come through in the full word title. No, no I no. am. I am retaliating against Vinnie Jones in vengeance for past misdemeanors. Would have been a better title. <laughs> but I'd be more likely to watch it with that title. Um, it refers to the actor by his actual name and not his character name would be enough for me to be honest you know what kind of quality level you're dealing with then well we're dealing with a film with Vinnie Jones in it so I think I'm pretty aware of the quality okay. Midnight Meat Train yes <laughs> X-Men 3 oh Jesus Christ when I knew when I found out he was being cast as Juggernaut I thought oh crikey oh crikey Moses <laughs> alright the, in the original comic series, um, Kane Marco, uh, who plays Juggernaut, isn't from West Ham. So I knew, <laughs> I knew there were going to be problems there with the accent. <laughs> All right, should we uh, should we dive into some of these gems? Please do, please do. American Mary, made in 2012. Uh, it's a horror, obviously. It's written and directed by. Uh, Jen and Sylvia Soska, also known as the Twisted Twins. Um, so this woman uh, named Mary, she is a med student, uh, training to be a surgeon. Um, wh- one day she's employed to perform a very strange yet very lucrative operation um, to turn a woman into a, like a doll um, by, you know, a doing like surgery on her um so her tutor at at college um thinks that she got the money 
that she's now got through being a prostitute. So he invites her to a party and then sexually assaults her. Uh, now, Mary then quits med school and kidnaps this teacher and does some serious body modding on him. Um, meanwhile, she becomes like a professional body modder, altering people in all kinds of strange ways. Um, and she does it all through this sordid strip joint. Um, it's so it's quite a it's quite a full on concept because it's all about pretty, you know, a bit of an underground scene of body modification and people sticking stuff in their faces and removing parts of their body and stuff. Uh, yeah. And it is quite a well shot film and, and it's quite atmospheric up to a point. And, and the first hour is quite uh, kind of surreal in a way, a bit Lynchian in its kind of off kilter atmosphere. And the, the main woman in it, Catherine Isabel, she's got this very understated performing style, which is quite a nice sort of counterpoint to the outrageous violence going on around her. But unfortunately, after that first hour, it doesn't really sustain it through to the end. Um, the actual plot kind of gets a bit mundane because Mary just is basically just gets deeper into this day job of body modification. Um, and then it just shifts into this standard men are dogs kind of thriller territory. Um, there's a, there is a detective who's following Mary around, and he is one of the worst actors I've ever seen. I'm not actually sure of his name, but... Al Clover, is it? <laughs> it's up there with Al. It's like, you know when you watch a movie and you think, and someone comes on they're so bad, you just think, did they literally just get a member of the crew to step onto the set to fill in that day or something because the actual actor didn't turn up? He's like that bad. I don't know whether, like, any time he turns up, it's it completely like takes you completely out of the film. There's no tension in the scenes um, between him and Mary, partly because like the, the sheer excess of the first half of the movie means that it doesn't really feel like it matters. Even if the cop gets to the truth, because these people are willing to do anything, you know, they're just like crazies in the underground. Like, I'm not sure it really matters if the detective gets to the truth. I don't know. It just seems really tension free. And I, I don't know if there's going to be some kind of sexual chemistry between the detective and Mary, but there is not because she can act and he cannot. So, um, yeah, I didn't really I didn't really buy into the kind of character arc of Mary herself as well, because she's she's very reluctant to get into the body modding game in the first place. Um, but then suddenly there's a jump cut and she's hips deep for some reason. Uh, and later on, she seems really horrified by some of the violent excesses of this kind of underworld that she's um, that she's inhabiting. And yet you're thinking, well, hang on, about you've been doing this for months. You, surely you've seen, you know, I know you've seen worse than this. Why are you suddenly getting all coy about it? So she's kind of ice cold one moment and then really soft and sentimental the next purely at the whim of the writers and uh, I, it doesn't come across as a conflicted character it comes across as she is an inconsistent character and it seems that the filmmakers were more interested in kind of just portraying this sordid twisted body modification kind of world underworld more than they were about an interesting plot which ends in a satisfactory manner 
so it just sort of presents these extreme yeah. situations and just assumes that that'll be enough to hold people's interest. Yeah, because in terms of characters and plotting, it really doesn't go anywhere. So it's not a terrible film. It's quite a well-made film, you know, aesthetically. And there's a fair amount of decent gore in it, I guess. Uh, but if you're looking for a satisfying story, it's not really um, it's not really that at all, unfortunately. I've got a feeling that um, Faye watched this years ago. Like I say, it's from 2012. And I'm sure she watched it and when I was not there. And I, I remember asking her about it and, she, and her overriding sort of comment was just like, oh, that was full on. Um, yeah. And that was it. I don't remember anything else. So, yeah, what you've said just matches up with that, really. Yes. You do, I'd say you'd probably come away with thinking, yeah, that was full on, but but nothing else, nothing else that you'd want from a film, if you see what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Just, yeah, you may as well just like watch a load of pictures of just horrible things yeah. on your phone. Yeah. Just scroll through a lot of GIFs and say, oh, okay. Um, well, um, I'll keep on the, the horror theme then, uh, and I'll talk about Wishmaster. Uh, because Excellent. last time I watched Wishmaster 2, and I was kind of disappointed by it. So I, I, it was an interesting one because I wanted to revisit it because it's, um, it's one of the films along with Nightbreed that I, I really hold in my head as like one of my favourite horrors. So I watched it again, and whilst it, I wouldn't say it's my favourite horror. It doesn't hold up as well as stuff like uh, Nightbreed does when I watched that for the first time after you know 10, 15 years away from it. But it, it is clearly the best in the series a series that massively dwindles in quality and you may as well just stick to that first one um uh, yes. yeah i was so this it, kind of the story is very much the same as the the second one to the point that they kind of crossed over in my head where uh andrew divoff is uh, a genie that comes back and is trying to uh grant the his sort of freer three wishes so that he can bring the gin into the world but this one feels more it felt it felt more enjoyable because there was more money to be had. So yeah. you get a lot of cameos by Kane Hodder and Robin England and Tony Todd, and the the physical effects are really good. And the sort of custom built sets, uh, like at the start where one of the um, someone says, "Show me, I want to see wonders," and of course the genie just makes everything look really supernaturally buzzing. So they are they are one they are, they are wonders to behold, but just deeply unpleasant <laughs> ones. And you see like a sort of snake man and people the skeletons coming out of their body. I look at you, bad CG, but it's it's all like really good fun. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really there's a sequence in it where you know what Andrew Divoff looks like, right? I do. Um, <clears throat> he is a man that is not fresh of face, and there's a sequence where he he's in his uh, Nathaniel, what's his name, Demerer Sugar or something, Demerer, Demerest, Nathaniel Demerer, Nathaniel Demerer Sugar, what a name! Um, no, uh, Nathaniel <laughs> Demerest, and he's got his awesome voice, and he goes in to get a suit put on. He makes a little quip where she says, "Oh, you know, if you want, we can get something a little bit more." Tight, and he says, "Oh no, thank you. I've I've had enough of uh, being confined, you know, for the last thousand years." Ha 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 ha. And then, then she just kind of fa- fancies him, and she, he's she's looking at her ass, and then she's just like obviously really smitten with him. And I thought, mm. just looks like someone's dad with unmanageable hair, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> I don't know why you, as like a twenty-year-old, would be would fall in love with him. Um, but no, it's it's really good fun. And the woman in it, uh, I've forgotten her name, but she, I was convinced for the first twenty minutes of the film that she was Ali Walker from Universal Soldier. Um, really? She's got quite a distinctive, distinctive face. And um, 
but it wasn't. And there's also a sequence at the start that's a bit iffy, a scene where she is playing tennis, I think, with one of her colleagues who's, who's a scientist who kind of um, comes in handy in the plot later on when they're looking at this crystal. And, sorry, Ruby, that uh, Andrew DeVoff has come out of. And they're playing tennis, and then he says to her, he's got a cap on backwards, you know you're dealing with. And he says, oh, you know, I was thinking we're really good friends, maybe we can you know, maybe take it further. And she clearly doesn't want to. She clearly is like, oh, look, you're a really good friend, I, I don't want to. And um, and then later on in the film, they just get together and, and because he dies, and then she has him brought back to life. And I thought, but you, you said you didn't want to be with him, though. So why, why is there like this big romantic turn up at the end when you you said like, oh no, it's cool, we can be friends, and that would have been quite nice if that was it. But no, it just has to go down there. Oh, actually, I am in love with you now because we've been through a lot. So it was a bit bizarre. But then you don't expect that from a horror. So, um, but yeah, Wishmaster, really good film, and one I will clearly watch again at some point. I just will not watch the second, third, or fourth ones ever again. No, yeah, it it didn't. It went downhill pretty quick that one, didn't it? Yes, yes. Well, it did. I suppose other, to be fair, other horror franchises go downhill pretty quick, but they can pep up again, shall we say? Because they think about like Nightmare on Elm Street. Second one's terrible, but the third one's really good. So you know, it can happen. With, with this as well, it's because of if you think about it, what what people want from these films, the Wishmaster films, are. <laughs> people to grant wishes and you just see something cool like in this there's a mm. few moments with like Kane Hodder's death involves really bad CG but when it's like physical stuff and there's a bit of money you can have fun with it and that's where the fun of the film comes from when you look at the synopsis on even just on Wikipedia of Wishmaster right so you've got Wishmaster boom lots of different um, lots of different locations custom built sets uh, you know boom 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 second one it's like a bit more stripped down but by the time you get to the fourth one the, the synopsis is just like oh there's like two people on a farmhouse in a farmhouse in the middle of yeah. nowhere and you're like you're like, yeah you're just, mm. you just it's because the money's gone you can't do anything you can't have any fun now yeah it dwindling returns mm. Mm. i haven't seen the first one wow <laughs> that's a pretty good joke i like that it's all right, actually. Yeah. In fact, I, I like that so much. When I edit this, I'm going to loop that twice. It does sound like a, a, a terrible horror movie, actually. The Dwindling. <laughs> <laughs> the Dwindling returns slowly. <laughs> uh, and then the final Dwindling. Oh, it's dwindled now. No, it's gone. <laughs> it's gone. Um, yeah, so that's that's Wishmaster. Good film. It is a good film. I, I need to watch it again. I, I watched it ages ago and immediately bought the Blu-ray, obviously. So I'm pretty out. sure it's on both Amazon Prime and Netflix. I watched it on Netflix, so you may as well just get it straight on there. Some of them are. Some of this gold is is on both, and I just think, good, just get the word out there, you know? You just well, want to get, it, to as, get it in front of as many eyes as possible. Yeah, um, one of the best horror films from 1997. I'm assuming... That's the other thing. I... With Wishmaster, I always imagine that it's earlier than it is, but it's not. It is 1937. It's like properly, it's properly at the absolute like low point of in horror history, and yet you still got gold like that. Hang on, low point of horror. When was when was also it's the same year as Starship Troopers. But pushing that aside, when did um, Scream come out? 96. I suppose that yeah. I suppose Scream did reinvigorate it actually. So I suppose early yeah, early mid 90s was probably pretty weak. But even then, you still get some gold then. You know. Just because it wasn't the 70s or the 80s, you know, you still got some quality. You still got some. The thing about the 90s was that a lot of the best um, horrors were at, were actually aimed at kind of 
teen crowds like you had the craft and scream the faculty brilliant um even i know what you did last summer still holds up pretty well all films i haven't seen for a very long time yeah. because because in my head the teen horror so i just avoid them yeah i would if if you're going to go for one of them then i would go for the faculty because that is Josh really Hans, good yeah. yeah it wasn't it's not his hair in that movie Oh it's here in all of his movies. Yeah. What was that but, one that was in that began with B um four years ago? Probably about ten years ago now. But book yeah, it was a weird word. And mm. uh yeah, it's here in that. It's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I don't know what he's doing now. All right. But I sing it, I think. It's the, <laughs> the culprit. Okay. Let's move on to Ghostbusters two then. This is on Prime. Oh American Mary was on Prime as well, obviously. So Ghostbusters 2 is on Prime. Obviously the first one isn't. <laughs> That's on Netflix. Um, <laughs> so Ghostbusters 2 came, it was a full five years after the original. Uh, and not only that, but apparently it's still being reshot right up to its release date. And to be honest, it does kind of show because the plot is all over the shop. It does start quite strongly Um like the Ghostbusters crew in this one are scattered in New York and basically sort of living off the remnants of their fame. And I, I feel like there could have been an interesting like meta story here because about how the, the Ghostbusters phenomenon kind of spawned songs and merchandise and stuff like that, because that could have been quite amusing. But that whole thing is pretty much jettisoned straight away. Um, the basic idea behind Ghostbusters 2 it feels like a reflection of the time in which it was made. Okay. So this is New York City before <clears throat> Giuliani came in and cleaned up the streets in the early 90s. Uh, and so New York City is still really scuzzy and the people are really depressed, basically. You and, love these films. Oh, yeah, I, I love anything set in New York before it became a safe place. <laughs> to me, is brilliant. Uh, so, um, but yeah, so this negativity amongst the city, is it's triggering this supernatural ooze under the city, uh, which is enabling Vigo the Carpathian to come alive uh, and possess Dana's baby, Sigourney Weaver's baby, and return to the world of the living. So the Ghostbusters need to get back together and take down Vigo with the help of some positive vibes from New York City citizens. So the, there's a problem here, though, because what you have is this story about the boundless power of positivity, right? Which is fine in and of itself, but it is contained in a film where it's very clear that there was no real positivity in the production. So you've got, like, Bill Murray is, we know he's a loose cannon at the best of times, and at the worst of times, like in this film, he just looks lazy and unfunny and that's what you get so there are some really cool sequences in it, individual sequences just really quickly i mean i haven't seen this film for a very long yeah. time i don't really hold ghostbusters in high regard like a lot of other people because i didn't mm. it wasn't like a film from my childhood i remember yeah. too much but is that with but I, I do like bill murray um yes. but is is there a definite definite change in his form from the first film then yes okay. he is in the first one like his kind of um, his sexual 
kind of politics aside in the film and the way he goes about uh, seducing Dana aside, he is funny and clearly a lot of it seems to be improvised anyway. It appears to be improvised and certainly a lot of his you know, facial expressions and move body movements and the little kind of things he does, little silly things he does. He's just funny to look at. That's yeah. always been the thing about Bill Murray is in any film, he's always been funny to look at uh, when he's engaged. But in Ghostbusters 2, he, there's, there's, there are lit- there seem to be shots in it where the camera will just linger on him and he doesn't really do anything. Like he's just staring and it's like, I know that it was a troubled production and I, I get the feeling that we're seeing the results on the screen, if you sort of mean. Um, so, cause I don't think it's a problem with the script. I think you could have, you know, if they'd been really engaged, it could have been funnier and more, um, engaging, but yeah, as I said, there are some really cool individual sequences, although they do tend to be just slightly worse reruns of the original film. Like there's this scene in a courtroom where these, um, ghosts of these uh executed criminals come back to wreak havoc havoc and it's it's quite good but it's just not quite as good as the hotel scene from the first one and then you've got the statue of liberty at the end obviously that comes alive and that's how they kind of uh come to enter the city and take down vigo the carpathian but even though that is impressive it is somehow manages to be less iconic than the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and no one even knows what that is so it's a bit weird I do like that there is a little bit more for Winston Zedmore to do in this one so that's nice although again I suspect it may be sometimes just because Bill Murray didn't turn up to set that day to be honest so it's you never know but it's nice anyway to see Ernie get a, a bit of a, a look in we do um, love a bit of Ernie on this podcast do. um so yeah, Ghostbusters 2, it's okay. It's passable enough. Uh, it's passable enough that it is still a mystery why there wasn't a third film. Because it, it is it is watchable and it is, you know, fast moving. It's not terrible. And it, it does have a funny performance from Peter McNichol with a ridiculous accent. Um, I suspect that had it come out like three years earlier, sort of 86, let's say, then we might have seen the com- a complete trilogy in the 80s. Ghostbusters um but instead I think a lot of what went into the Ghostbusters 3 script obviously it was never made but I think a lot of it went into the video game which was made what 20 years later so yeah yeah 2011 something like that yeah so which is fine because that's nice it it made it that into a really cool game with and of course because it was using you know Dan Aykroyd's script it meant that the actors came back for that. So they did get their final uh, goodbye to the kind of franchise. So. Oh, oh, that's really cool. I didn't realize that. So the Ghostbusters game, which is effectively Ghostbusters 3, but just called Ghostbusters the video game. Yeah. That that had the original cast doing the voices. Yeah. And um, well, I, I think that's how they got them back, really, because, I mean, it's not literally the script, but I know it took elements of the script for Ghostbusters 3. Um, and yeah. So yeah, it's got the original voices in it, which is cool. That's cool. Okay. Yeah, I'll and it's a good game. Good. So, and yeah, it's probably a better. It's probably better than Ghostbusters Two, the film, really, as a story. It's a, it better than Ghostbusters Two, the game, though. You just have to be slowly lowered into a sewer and a cable. What with like loads of gooey arms coming out of you. You can't avoid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, re- I remember that being challenging, but thinking it was look really cool. 
Yes, it was. It was. You're exactly right. Exactly right. Bit of a crossover to say the play there. Uh, uh, yeah. So, um, I watched. The, uh, I'll, I'll go through this one, which I forgot about telling. Um, I am Vengeance Retaliation, which is an action film from 2020, on yes, you guessed it, Amazon Prime, starring Stu Bennett, also known as Wade Barrett, uh, from the WWE universe, uh, with Vinnie Jones playing the bad guy. Uh, Sean Teague and it's basically a cast of ex-wrestlers um, of varying just... fame yeah so he's <laughs> so hang on his stage name is Wade Barrett and his real name is Stu Bennett yes it's not that different really is it I mean, they're, they're both just quite normal names <laughs> <laughs> Wade when I think of Wade Barrett I think of Wade Garrett from um What's it called? Diddy, uh, not Diddy Dancing, Roadhouse, like Sam Elliott's yeah. character. So oh, yeah, maybe yeah. that's what he was going for. Oh, yeah. Well, fair play then. Yeah, ah, yeah because... Now, your hat to the best. I remember watching Sam Elliott in Roadhouse when I must have been about 11 or 12 and thinking, I'm not, I haven't gone through my sexual awakening yet and I'm probably straight, but I fancy that man. I fancy <laughs> you, Sam Elliott. So, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I grew up, and then when I watched it in my like, late 20s, and I looked back, I thought, yeah, you were right, Britt. You were right to fancy him. He's such a cool character in that film. Um, gone slightly off topic there. My love for Sam Elliott. Um, yeah, so this is a film where, uh, where uh, Stu Bennett, who is, if you imagine, he's basically he's got a neck um, thicker than me when I was at school. He's got a nice big beard. And he's about six foot four, tattoos, English bloke, and he's got a, like, a really commanding presence. Uh, and I, this is the first film I've seen him in. I didn't realise he was in it, even in it, really. It just I saw Vinnie Jones on the cover and thought, ah, I haven't seen Vinnie in a film for a while, I'll chuck it on. So the story is that John Cold, Stu Bennett, uh, John Gold, sorry, has, has got a hunt down uh, Vinnie Jones's character, Sean Teague. Uh, he is uh, kind of an ex-private um, sort of military contractor that has gone rogue, and now Wade, uh, Stu Bennett and his team have been sent in to take him down and and that's the film. They just go there and they just got to like sort of uh, arrest him and take him out of there on a plane. Mm-hmm. Now, what this means, of course, is that tellingly, Vinnie Jones is you know where he's keeping his sort of secret secret bunker and his mm-hmm. and his close aides to him is obviously in an industrial estate in Romania. <laughs> so they go screaming screaming from an office at the start where they just tell him they just explain yeah. the plot and then flash cut boom getting out of an unmarked van in an industrial estate an industrial estate that some may say they never leave for the 82 minutes duration of the film um it does that thing where there's the sequence where they like drive off and then they they run out of gas kind of thing they find a dead end and they get out and they're like oh well it, we'll just have to hold up an ear for a bit and i said what the same industrial estate from a different <laughs> angle um so it's it's fine, right? It's low budget, and it is better than what was it called, Apocalypse Z, Z, um, because there's some really good fighting in it. So Wade Barrett's team consists of uh, a, a man and a woman, and whilst both are not good actors, the man is really bad. Like she, the woman can actually fight; she's obviously physically capable. Mm. And the, the sort of hand-to-hand combat sequences are quite good, especially mm. when there's um, the, the women fight because they're clearly just trained martial artists, and it's not shaky cam; it just shows them, and they they go through a lot of cool choreography. Hang on, so um, you can see what's happening. <laughs> I know. 
someone needs to tell what's his name greengrass this um yeah you, you can just see yeah you can someone needs to tell greengrass from heartbeat about this um so what's his name bill snodgrass or something anyway um yeah, so it, it's fine. What you can see the fight sequences. Obviously, uh, Stu Bennett is an ex wrestler, so mm. he's kind of f- physically capable, and it's just him kicking, uh, kicking fin- Finney Jones's henchmen, uh, kicking their asses. Obviously, there's a certain budgetary constraint, which is why they're on a Romanian industrial estate. But there are some key sequences that really, really tickled me. That really stood up for me. One of and one of them is they're in the. If you imagine this, right, they're in a, in a van. Uh, they just put in Vinnie Jones in cuffs in the back of a van on an industrial mm. estate and they get shot at by a sniper. So they mm. sat in the back of this van and if they move like an inch out of there, they just get shot at. So they're like, we're stuck in this van. And the, the driving seat is like sort of covered off by like a wire mesh so they can't drive off. Mm. And they're like, oh, well, I'm going to have to just draw the fire or something. And then the woman says, oh no, I've got an idea. And then she just really slowly gets at the back of the van, walks around, gets in, gets in the front turns around and pulls like a quip and then they just drive off slowly and i thought oh. that was... <laughs> so the idea was to get in the front for some reason right <laughs> off which is what everyone does in a car and um, so yeah it was just and then this just, just this she just doesn't get shot at like inexplicably um, <laughs> my idea is to not be shot brilliant and <laughs> yeah, um, there's, there's another sequence as well where it, it's got a problem where when there's not like the dialogue terrible, but it's almost like if someone isn't in shot in frame, they don't mm. exist. Um, there's, there's a sequence when Vinnie Jones gets into a fight with Stu Bennett and he says, oh, I'm going to put a stop to this and gets out of the car filled with his heavily armed henchmen. And then he gets into um, a fight, a lengthy brawl with Stu Bennett, which he loses or like, systematically loses all fight. And then, Stu Bennett gets distracted and runs off. And then, as Vinnie Jones had his ass kicked for five minutes, then his men kind of get out of his car mm. and, and sort of. And I'm like, this is just lazy now. It's almost like they can only focus on one event at a time. And there are minutes where people are like, there's a stupid bit where Vinnie Jones is like near a fight going on and he, he grabs his girlfriend and says, quick, follow me. And then he just starts fiddling with a combination lock to a door. And I thought, you're not going to guess the code. <laughs> like, and, he, and it's just an excuse to kind of keep him out of the way. And the film yeah. keeps on doing this. So, um, yeah, it's it's an okay action film, but it's just very silly. Like, really, really silly. And also, it does the same thing that um, Scott Adkins' film, oh, I forgot what it's called now, the one I watched a few weeks ago does, where the moment anyone pulls out a gun and starts firing it, no one is in any danger. There's so many sequences <laughs> where, like, someone will boot open a door to like an aircraft hangar and there'll be like one man standing in the middle or like holding a knife and they will open fire him with like five or six machine guns and shotguns and they'll just slowly run off and duck behind a barrel no one's in danger no one is in danger yeah um so yeah it suffers from that as well but i did enjoy it because it was it was silly does he do any wrestling moves on anyone of course he does he does a <laughs> suplex i was i was calling them out as he did them fireman's carry suplex neckbreaker dnt uh yeah so it was um it was kind of fun. And he's weirdly, like Stu Bennett, is like got quite a screen presence. All right. Um, so he has the important got, like, thing in it. Oh yeah, it wasn't yeah, just like he turned it, up. It was it, just a film around him was. It, you can't. You don't have to be a good actor. You just have to have that presence, don't you? Really. Yeah. It it is funny how because obviously they just got to keep find ways to keep it exciting without spending money. There are so many moments when 
he will just get hold of Vinnie Jones and say, right, come with me. And then they'll just get separated. And there are so many moments when Vinnie Jones is like sort of smirking himself, like, oh, got away again, walking down some alley. And then Stu Bennett will just walk. Right, come on. <laughs> this time. And then there's a bit where he puts them on a bike facing away from him. Imagine like sitting on the back of a motorbike while someone else rides it. And you're, hand- and you're like, not handcuffed, just sitting on the bike facing away as he drives you through this airstrip of this, uh, to this, um, what's it called? Uh, aircraft hangar yeah. and only when he takes him off and says right get on the plane then does Vinnie Jones reveal that for the entire film he's just had a massive army knife in his pocket yeah. that he could have used at any point to just kill him without him knowing <laughs> so yeah it's silly but it's fun it's a bit of a mystery right you know PM Entertainment uh, yes. whose films we've sampled many of their wares okay so they were all made when between late 80s and mid to late 90s i guess right and all of them almost all of them were set in la right and okay there wasn't a huge budget behind them we know this we can see this it's on the screen and um (laughs) but they would still be set in la with la locations on la streets and there would always be one or maybe two money shot kind of car crashes on these streets where a car would flip things would blow up etc and you'd see kind of you know the la skyline in the background and it's cool yeah it's like okay why like i don't believe well maybe these films that are being made in the last 20 years we say maybe they are much lower budget but they can't be that much lower budget than what the kind of stuff that pm entertainment would turning out so why is it that they need to go off to some industrial estate in the ukraine or whatever it's like surely unless you know pm entertainment were missing a trick back in the day and they could have saved a bunch of money uh, and had three car crashes say in romania or whatever and they just chose to stay in la but i don't know it just seems a bit weird that i don't know what's changed because it's noticeable that low-budget action films always, even if they say they're set in America or something, you can tell by the buildings and the lighting and everything, it is not America. It's somewhere in Europe, somewhere in Eastern Europe, some yeah, ex-communist nation. Yeah, the Soviet like, bloc. It, yeah. is, it, is, it is telling. And the thing is as well, they go from these films, I've seen about five or six of them over the last year or two. They start off in, a, in an office where the plot is explained and then boom, industrial estate. And there may be like uh, some interior shots of, in like a, a vehicle on the way kind of thing, which is mm. probably a van in a warehouse on an industrial estate. And yeah, of course, when they're driving around and they're supposed to be changing settings, you know, this is still just the same industrial estate. It's just a different yeah. building on it. It, 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 it. It's really limiting. So yeah, every really, film yeah. really feels like the same film. It doesn't, there's no atmosphere to it because it's such a sort of, I mean, I've never been to LA, but it, we're kind of familiar with that. And it does, at least it's a populated place, if you see what I mean. But an industrial estate anywhere is not an interesting location for anything. It's just a cheap location. So yeah. It, it's never going to be. Not, it's not visually interesting. There's no. never anything to look at apart, apart from the slightly dodgy acting you're seeing in front of you, and possibly bad CG in the gunfire. Yeah, I'll have to look into it one time. Maybe the like the cost of you know shooting. I can imagine. I remember it's a different medium, but I remember reading about um, like in the 80s and, and 
uh, up to like the early to mid nineties, basically till the internet took off. Mm. Um, when everything, it, it probably was the internet that, that massively affected the budgets of these things because of piracy, inherent piracy. But mm. I remember them saying uh, it was a record executive, and he said, you know, we could we could throw like you know a million dollars or eight hundred thousand dollars at a band like Fleetwood Mac to make an album, but that just would not happen now. There's mm. not that much money. There's just far less money in it. So mm-hmm. maybe it was that. Maybe at the time, you know, they made these films, they had a bigger budget because they could think, well, we're going to make maybe. X amount back from the video market. Whereas now, piracy is so inherent that it would. they know they just have to work on a much more... It is literally about, like, let's just work on as tight a budget as possible. And yeah. And see what you can milk out of it. Perhaps some part of it is to do with technology and the fact that everything's filmed digitally these days so they can... You know, you practically film it on a phone, really, aren't you? So you're not lugging huge setups, uh, huge cameras around, I suppose, and you can so you can afford to take it to some cheapo country. I don't but you'd, th- you'd think if you could film, like you know, the, some of these films I watch could very well be filmed on iPhones. I don't know, but yeah, if if you if if you, if you can do awful. that, yeah, yeah, if you can just check it in your pocket and you're going to film it on a phone anyway. Well, surely you can you can take the time to just like you know maybe just film something in London or just so, somewhere that's not an industrial estate somewhere yeah, that's like some sort of visual interest. For someone just to go to one of these places and at least get some establishing shots, even if it's just pictures of them with their wife yeah. just standing on cafes, you know, this is something <laughs> nice to look at instead of a lot of rusting corrugated roofing. <laughs> right. Anyway, should we move on? To, <laughs> yes. Let's move on to Orphan, which is on Netflix. Uh, so Orphan, this was in, this was made in 2009. It's directed by, um, Jean Colette Sarah. He is, you will know him. stars Peter Sarsgaard, who sounds exactly like John Malkovich. Yes. Yes. That is entirely correct. (laughs) Uh, Colette Sarah is known for his collaborations with Liam Neeson. You know, he did Unknown, Nonstop, Run All Night. they all kind of run into each other to be honest um but before that yeah he made this uh in in it's kind of this quite schlocky psychological horror um so peter sarsgaard and vera farmiga play this upper middle class uh, uh husband and wife who lose a child late in the pregnancy stage and they end up adopting uh, this girl called esther who's a russian american nine year old and she's very prim and polite and quite precocious as well she basically seems like a perfect child gradually it becomes apparent that she is not perfect she is playing the family off each other um to basically tear them apart uh starting with the kids turning them against the the parents she's a little monster basically um the film is pure schlock to be honest but it does show how kind of quite ordinary material can be elevated by talent because Colette Sarah, he is like, I know, I know those Liam Neeson films have become a bit, uh, a bit tedious now because they're, yeah, they're just same. rehashes of, yes. Yeah. But he is a, cra- he is a craftsman. He is an old school filmmaker at heart and he, and he, he does craft really good set pieces. And I think that the, that kind of old school craft, that set piece, management suits the horror genre quite well and and then you have the performances of especially Vera Farmiga and also um the girl who's played by someone called Isabel Furman and she's really good 
Vera Farmiga is so good at portraying someone who is trying to keep her cool while taking really serious like emotional hits constantly. You can just see it in her face. It's really good performance. And Isabel Furman is genuinely creepy and really malevolent as a kid because she's a little bitch. She really is. Um, so, yeah, I think Orphan is a lot of fun because because Esther is so like viciously creative and so smart in the way she tortures people. Um, and she's really relentless. I mean, she's not just cruel. She she knows how adults think, which enables her to kind of cover her tracks and make it look like it's the mother's fault, say. And, it, and it's really kind of frustrating and compelling to watch. I do think the film also says something about the quite modern tendency to blindly believe in children's innocence um, and and our and the same equal tendency to target mothers, bad mothers for blame, if you see what I mean. Hmm. Um, makes me think of, what's that film? Um, we need to talk about Kevin, because that, that, was that what it's called? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And that, of course, had, that was about a child who's literally just born evil. So it it is interesting topic. And I think it's covers some of the same ground, albeit in a slightly sillier way. Uh, so the husband, Peter Skarsgård, he's very much complicit in in the kind of way that the mother is blamed in this situation. And he's he's constantly minimising his wife's suspicions, and basically basically he's reinforcing that hysterical woman stereotype. And another kind of neat aspect about the whole thing is that, of course, the mother has lost a child already, never really gotten over it. So any threats to her own children are even more alarming. So it adds a bit of edge to it, and. Yeah, so of course the film comes completely ridiculous in the final act, but mm. by that point you kind of don't want it to be any other way, I suppose. Um, it's very skillfully made, and the final twist is so absurd, it just goes beyond absurdity and back around to making sense again. So um, yeah, it's quite it's a nasty film and it's good, a lot of fun. Enjoyed that. I did notice there was a scene in that film because uh, I, I I don't. I didn't watch it, but I heard Peter Skarsgård's voice and thought, is that John Malkovich? Um, but there was um, the sequence in it when the, the kids are in the next room and they just start having like really passionate, like fully naked sex in the kitchen. And then one of the kids yeah. sees them. And they're like, they're like, oh, that was embarrassing. And I thought it's because you're in the kitchen while your kids are next door, like having like really visceral <laughs> sex and like in, in a fully lit kitchen. Yeah. So yeah, and I remember them. They go, "Oh, that was awkward. Oh, are we going to explain this?" And I thought, "Well, just by not doing it, really." Yeah, <laughs> you can just to... go upstairs and not do that. I get that. Yeah, I get that he's horny, but you probably could just find another time. Say, should we just go upstairs so they're not in front of the children in a in yeah. the middle of the I'd, kitchen? I'd lock the door, yeah, in a brightly lit kitchen, the fully glass window behind us. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. What I heard at slash saw of it, it was cool. Yeah. Um, and it was a really good performance by the 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 girl who, who plays um. Yeah, she's well. terrifying. Yeah. She's absolutely terrifying. I uh, think she's slightly older. I think she is actually nine. I think she's like eleven or twelve or something at the time. But it, yeah, it gets full on really creepy towards the end when she starts. Um, well, I won't spoil anything because it is, it's a twist worthy of watching and disbelieving yourself. I watched Bright on Netflix with Joel Edgerton and Will Smith. So sorry. Um, I, I watched this because 
it's been on there for a while since I think it's 2017 or something it was made, and I always just it basically came out. I saw some pretty bad reviews for it. And thought, nah, I'll give it a skip, even though I like both of the actors in it. And um, and it, I just fancied it. I just thought it's just one I want to watch and decide for myself. And mm. I have to say that I actually didn't mind it too much. It, it's yeah. it's so for people who aren't aware, this the story is that this is very much set um, in a world, as someone else has pointed out, kind of like a less cybery shadow run where you've got uh, elves, orcs, humans, and kind of fairies all live and all uh, are at different levels of, of society. Like the elves are in, you know, skyscrapers, glassy skyscrapers, and orcs are kind of the bottom of the pile and are treated as just dullards. And then you've got in the, in the middle then humanity. Um, and Joe Legerton is a, is an orc cop that's been partnered with uh, Will Smith's character Ward. And it's sort of a, they get, embroiled in a in a magical over this uh, a sort of mystery of this magic wand that can grant wishes and is effectively as dangerous as nuclear weapon and it's effectively like a a buddy chase movie um uh, so yeah i i like it i liked it uh to an extent because i liked uh, i thought the physical the the makeup was really cool i really like the sort of physical practical effects i find will smith just a really endearing and this is very much in his wheelhouse as like a sort of um uh, you know like a like a fast talking cop sort of thing and then you've got joel edgerton who i really like his performance as an orc because he's obviously joel edgerton is very talented we've seen him in other things and Mm. What I liked about it was he, he comes across as someone who's not so much thick. It's just like quite quite naive and take things at face value. And yeah. I really liked I really liked his performance in it. What I didn't like was how it was very much set up as a franchise starter. Um, mm. The way and I we talked about this weirdly. I think last week was something else where you're thinking, and it ends very much as if this is the introduction of a franchise that possibly mm. never is going to be now, and it, and it makes you feel like you're watching. Um, almost like a pilot and, and i yeah. always get this with kind of origin things i just don't really like them um it's quite long possibly overly long um but i i and there are some moments in the dialogue where i was thinking what but i actually quite <laughs> liked it as a I, i'm not like a tolkien-esque i like the fact it was quite gritty that it took you know like orcs and elves and put it in a in a pretty urban setting yeah uh, yeah you know, i quite liked it would i watch yeah. it again no Mm. Do I wish? But do I wish there was a sequel which stood on its own? Yes, that's what I. So you'd watch a sequel? Yeah, yeah. Because I think right, they've done all the initial stuff out of the way, and I don't have to sit through the tedious thing. I can now you can have a story and tuck into it, sort of thing. Because the stuff, the 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 kind of casual references to this rich history and lore behind each uh, race of 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 people is obviously just kind of thrown in here and there. And I think, right, now you've done all that. Now, I know how this all works. Now, now give, me a, give me a standalone story in this world now. Yeah. I got the sense that the reason that it, that stuff is just thrown in here and there is because it's not really a very well thought through mythology. You see what I mean? Uh, yeah, I, I did find it quite obnoxious, I've got to say. But then maybe I was just burnt out on brash, obnoxious... Uh, cgi filled action movies don't know but yeah, yeah it, it did seem like some of, the, some of the sort of um, really clumsy sort of racial references i did think let's not get too above your station here let's somewhat heavy-handed wasn't it yeah. yeah that was a problem <laughs> well that's what i mean that's all done now that this is why yeah. this is kind of the you know the, the rough gravel path to the beautiful tarmac drive that could have been the sequel but i don't think it's gonna happen 
Yeah, that's so often the case, though, isn't it? Sometimes, like, I, I'm looking at you, Basket Case Trilogy, because <laughs> because the first Basket Case, right, was obviously Grindhouse film set in New York, good. But that, it was so low budget and so shoddy, it's like, it's not that enjoyable in its on its own. It's a bit of a curiosity. But then Basket Case 2 and 3, with a bigger budget, like uh, a better script, better performances you know better better craft it was they're really good and they're really funny but of course you have to watch the first one in order to get to the other two so it's like okay it's annoying it's annoying because you can't you really just want to watch them back to back but it's like wow the first one's a bit shoddy you know well this is the Uh, thing is it's almost the flip of what usually happens isn't it because usually the the first one is good and then it's diminishing returns but then the first one is sometimes like in these cases you think okay i've watched that one and then there's nothing and you're like, I oh, I would actually. So what you're saying here is that there's enough here that you'd want to watch a sequel, and it would probably be better than the first. Yes, one. because then they've done all the heavy-handed racial stuff. They've they've set the scene. They can just yeah. say, you know, this is how this world works. Here's a story in it, as opposed to explaining how the world works as alongside the story. Yeah. So. Okay. Should I give it another go? I'm not sure. No, because and I would I would say give it another go if a sequel comes out. Yeah, maybe that'd probably be it, wouldn't it? Yeah. I wonder if there is. It was written by um, what's his name? The uh, guy David Ayer. No, I think it's directed by David Ayer, but uh, it was um, written who was by Mark it? L. Lester. <laughs> it was written by Max. What's his face? Landis. Oh, okay. Um, John Landis's son, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. okay. I'd... Yeah. He's a bit of a. He's a bit of a loudmouth, but um, yeah, I think he because he he did it was Chronicle he did originally um, that overrated found footage film, and yeah, and I think he got quite big time after that, and he wrote a few few hits. But yeah, this was I don't know if he's done anything after this, but yeah, David Ayer was a director, and yeah, he always does gritty pretty well. I I just think he. Perhaps it felt like he does gritty better than he does fantasy. It felt much yes, more weighted oh, yeah. towards the gritty, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, let's move on then. Okay. That's that's on Netflix, isn't it? Because that's a Netflix. Original. Yeah, that is a Netflix original. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to summer of '84 then, which is on Shudder. I've bitten the bullet. <laughs> Got my Shudder subscription. Oh, um, nice. Someone's yeah. showing off. Uh, and it's it's left me shuddering with delight. Um, well, no, it hasn't actually, because oh, we'll see. Actually, this is pretty good. Some of '84 is okay. This was this was made in 2018, and unsurprisingly, from the title, it is a retro-style horror yeah. with a synth score, set in a Midwest town. Good. Um, starring a group of boys who spend their time discussing conspiracy theories in a treehouse and making the odd pop culture reference so not too many i hope mm, yeah well actually no not too many i think to be fair i think the only real direct one is when someone asks oh have you seen gremlins yet or something like that so uh that's okay so yeah uh so that description anyway could be very appealing for some people or it could be the nail in the coffin for other people for me, I, I'm fine with it. I'm absolutely fine with it. It borrows very heavily from the likes of the Monster Squad and the Burbs. 
good. Yeah. And I suppose there's a little bit of Fright Night in there as well. So the story focuses on these these four teenage boys. And the main one, Davy, he believes that his neighbour, who is a cop, is a serial killer. And he convinces his three friends, one of whom is a fat klutz, obviously. Um, <laughs> uh, he convinces three friends that of this conspiracy and they basically set about gathering evidence by well, rifling through his bins and sneaking around his house breaking into his garage and stuff um of course not everything is... <laughs> Break, breaking into his garage but not his house yeah <laughs> so they break it they're like where well, he's got his car and he's got his tools nothing let's just let's no, go else. um yeah not everything is quite as, as it seems and the film does a good job of depicting depicting the sort of paranoia that goes when you've got this uh, almost conspiracy-led investigation, if you see what I mean. Like, they're so convinced of his guilt that everything, everything that happens, everything they observe in him can look like evidence, if you see what I mean. If you're convinced of the outcome already, anything he does is going to look like evidence. And so that's quite good fun. And there are obviously loads of very familiar elements in the film. But saying that the the 80s styling isn't too fetishized thankfully it's not too over the top as i said like the odd reference here and there but really it's just quite nice production design like of just crappy old food cartons and stuff and yeah and just rubbish crt tvs things like that and and a slight yellowy brownness to everything good and yeah so but basically i think you kind of got the what you can do with these things is really fetishize the period, make it like, oh, look at you, spot the references and stuff like that. Something that Stranger Things does a little bit too much of. So, or as an, as is the case here, I think it, what it does more is that it uses the period setting to just to tell a more straightforward story and to kind of eliminate those technological shortcuts um, yeah. that you have in a modern film, like the fact that the kids don't have mobile phones, for example. So. They've got the, these they've slightly got pages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they've they got slightly dodgy walkie-talkies. It's a bit silly the way they're constantly all just on hand whenever they pick up a walkie-talkie, but anyway. Um, there's nothing in there which is really innovative in terms of the plot developments, I wouldn't say. But, however, the film takes a really, really surprisingly dark turn in the final act, oh. and and it and it means that it ends up not with the kind of triumph you're expecting in a film like this. And I personally found that quite refreshing. Others might be quite turned off by just how dark it goes and quite suddenly. And um, I think as well, other people may find it a bit too slow during the middle section. Um, but I do think that it helps in a way in this instance to know that the film is going to go to a very kind of dark and unexpected place be because it helps you through that middle section where it is pretty much just the kids hanging out and finding a lot of dead ends in their investigation and stuff and getting bollocked by their parents, that sort of thing. And so it, it kind of gives that plodding stuff in the middle a bit more weight, if you see what I mean. I enjoyed it a lot and it's very atmospheric and the synth score is by Limatos, the synth artist, and it's brilliant. So that 
if nothing else, just listen to the soundtrack. Have you bought it on vinyl yet? <laughs> really? <laughs> oh no, yeah, okay. Then I, I, I'm kind of in, I'm kind of intrigued, but I'm also very much aware mm. that it's on Shudder, and I, I, it's like <sighs> yeah. I got so many subscriptions on the go. I know. <laughs> it might be on another channel, unless it's a Shudder original. I don't know, because some of these things you find they pop up on Prime. Or they might be on like Arrow or something else, you know. Because I know that Maniac Cop is on um, Shudder, and that's definitely an Arrow video film. So, oh really? Yeah. Maniac Cop, not Maniac Cop Two, the best one where Robert Darvey can't even sit in a chair. I need to watch. I need to watch that film, but I need to watch that with with a group of our friends because some of the stuff that happened in that film was absolutely astonishing. It's an amazing trilogy, is it? Yeah, because we watched the trilogy, didn't we? And I love the fact that it's just the first one is almost like pretty much a straight up like slasher. And then they just suddenly did turn into action movies. It's just an excuse for loads of pretty awesome stunts, to be fair. Really good stunts. But the reused footage, my God. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, we, I, we should watch um, as soon as possible, really. We should watch Maniac Cop 2 again just to cover it on the podcast really fully. Yeah. Oh, Let's go into real detail. Okay. Uh, so yeah, okay, that 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 could be on my list. Summer of '84. Um, I watched Darkman. Um, for I I my relationship with Darkman has been a weird one because I was more familiar. I thought when I was a kid, it was a game that was made into a film, not the other way around. Because obviously, I just I was too young to watch it. It came out in 1990, so I would have been seven. Um, but I had the game to play. Which, uh, okay, Rupert, you've got one guess, right? You have to guess the genre of the Darkman game, and I'm only going to give you one piece of information, right? It was made by Ocean Software. <laughs> uh, I am going to... I'm just going to push it out there. I'm going to take a wild guess and say it was a side-scrolling pixel art platformer. That's astonishing. With some mini games, yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, exactly right. The mini games are the best part, actually. You have to kind of take pictures of people as they walk past windows to get a full uh, version of like their face that grew, you know, with each with each picture you took. So you have yeah. more like energy in the next level, which is quite cool. Um, so Darkman, it's it, I'll talk about the plot before I talk about my my sort of history. It stars Liam Neeson as and, and Larry Drake, obviously, as uh, as a Liam Neeson is trying is a scientist that's trying to create this like surrealistic synthetic flesh that lasts longer than ninety minutes, <laughs> lasts longer than his DVD of Commando with the three minutes of extra footage added in the special <laughs> edition, uh, and which is what he uses as a timer. Um, and he is kind of on the cusp of making this breakthrough when, because his uh, partner played by Francis McDormand is involved in this sort of seedy underworld uh, sort of dodgy dealings at government level. Uh, he gets attacked uh, and brutally maimed by Larry Drake and his bodyguards. And they through throwing him around his lab and all these various things. They they completely um, disfigure him in it all, well, all over his hands and his face. Mm. And he then becomes a kind of superhero 
uh, character because it's explained very brief- briefly at one point that it, because his nervous system is so damaged, it's almost like he he has superhuman strength because it kind of reroutes his energy elsewhere, sort of thing. Yeah. But it's all nonsense. But so yeah, scientifically so it, sound. Absolutely, and yeah, and so it's the whole film is then uh, Liam Neeson trying to reconnect with Francis McDormand whilst he is trying to get this, you know, using these various skin disguises and uh, in his old ruined lab. And I, I didn't know what to expect because in my head, Darkman was a horror. And when you mm-hmm. look at like, even when you're on Netflix and you look at the picture, it looks like a horror, like a the burning kind of horror. Yeah. And but then when you watch the film, it's quite cartoonish because it's obviously directed by Sam Raimi, and it's got this really cartoonish. Oh, by the way, Ted Raimi's brother turns up in Wishmaster as well. Boom. Um, <laughs> we're yeah, we're um, it's actually like a more Batmany. It's more like gothic. Yeah. Uh, than horror and actually and I was really surprised by how much I liked it it's so fast moving it is such a brisk film um, there's a sequence I think the music's by Danny Elfman as well and it that makes it that adds to the Batman aspect yes this is true actually that is a good point it um, it's there's a sequence in it like for example where he gets you know, blasted out into the I don't know, Hudson River wherever it is when he gets initially disfigured and then he wakes up and he's in this kind of uh, like facility with the, the scientist who's talking to him is explaining how he's got superhuman strength now and then I reached as he was there tied up on this kind of rack having his powers explained to him I reached over to have a sip of my wine Argentinian Malbec and by the time I had a sip and looked back at the screen he was out of there and running through a field and I thought hang on what what and I had to like rewind it and I thought did it skip then but no it just it just shows him like straying against his bonds and then boom he's out of there it's like right that's that done um and then it's just him like wearing a trench coat with these like really buzzing band like really dirty bandage wraps like trailing off his hands and face as he tries to reconnect with Francis McDormand um I really like the special effects on him. Like, I think that's what scared me as a kid, to be honest, because when he mm. kind of unveils his face later on and you see it at length exposed, it's actually quite foul, like this kind of yeah. half grimacing skull face he's got. Um, and it really stands up. I, I know there's a sequel, obviously, where Liam Neeson is replaced by Arnold Vosloo, which is something, <laughs> to be honest, I can probably get on board with. Um <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, if Arnold Vosloo left, they could have made a Dark Man 4 and 5. Boom, get Billy Zane in. No one will know the difference. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I I really like this. Larry Drake is a really like, horrendous, rubber-faced villain. He is and menacing. He is really menacing. And it's got that Sam Raimi cartoonish slapsticky bit yeah. where, uh, like, Liam Neeson is... is disguised as Larry Drake and they they get stuck in a revolving door together and there's a bit of sped up footage and you're like but it's kind of fun you kind of yeah. expect that from Sam Raimi so and it keeps it from being too miserable and dark oh yeah yeah it's uh yeah there's a bit of Frankenstein about it isn't there yeah uh, this whole thing uh sort of yeah sort of a comic book Frankenstein story really in it and um yeah Larry Drake is really menacing in it and uh, he's dead now I think Really? Oh, Larry, yeah. Yeah, I think he died a few years ago. Oh. But yeah, he's yeah, he's an odd-looking chap. But yeah, uh, I did enjoy. Um, yeah, I did enjoy Dark Man a lot. It's quite, it's quite an unusual. Obviously, this. It, when was it? So what? Early nineties. Nineteen ninety, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was hot off the heels of Batman eighty nine. Yeah, and so, and you did get some. Yeah, the odd gem of a comic book film around that period, because of course, 
it won it was long before marvel came along and kind of uh distilled the formula and so it was almost like people were work out what a comic book movie should look like and feel like for a good good long while after that and this it does feel like a comic book genuinely you know and i think that's that's a lot of that's down to sam raimi and his his certain style his use of sort of constant dutch angles and like amusing zooms and things like that i think this it also because of its because of when it was made it features some great retro technology um yeah including a bit where the the way that he gets his 3d printed fully 360 like latex versions of people's entire like heads and necks Mm. is by taking a picture on a camera and putting it in a scanner and I thought, I don't think that would give you enough information of that grainy, <laughs> low-quality Polaroid to completely reconstruct their entire visage in 3D. Call me old-fashioned. It yeah, isn't one of the photos like really damaged as well? So yeah, that's that's why he's trying to get his own his own jib back, isn't he? And he's like, oh. he's like, I can't use that one because a bit of my ass has been cut out of it. I'm going to have to get another photo. Um, this, it, it reminded me of the bit in Enemy of the State where Will Smith uh, and... They, they, where they get a picture on CCTV of Will Smith holding a carrier bag and then they put it in some software and then they like rotate it to see that something in the bag has shifted from behind and I thought really from a 2D static image Can't you've do done that. that, that's very clever very clever Absolutely, absolutely brilliant <laughs> <laughs> um, Right then yeah so Darkman is a yeah it's a good film, it's a little gem I may, from... I may watch the sequels Right. I may watch them to see yeah. what just because it's all new to me is something I've never seen. What where can we see Dark Man? You can see it on Netflix. But yeah. I dare say the second and third ones, which are probably worse, are gonna be on Amazon Prime. Yeah. <laughs> I'll pick up the slack there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. I've got another shudder one to talk about. Okay. Which is called A Perfect Getaway. Have you heard of this? No, no, seen not it. At all. Uh, I don't think I have. <laughs> I had heard of it, but actually, it's got some talent in there. I'll have a look so, as you're talking. I'll have a little. It was directed by David Tui, and if that name is familiar, he is best known for the Riddick films, of course. So he made this in 2009, uh, which I guess is after Pitch Black. Yeah. So anyway, this but this is much more grounded than those films. This is uh, set on Earth for a start. It's about a nice couple played by Steve Zahn and uh, Mila Jovovich. Steve Zahn. Who I, yeah. And they're taking a hiking honeymoon in Hawaii. There is apparently a killer or possibly killers uh, on the loose. Um, uh, it says so in the newspapers, but, you know, they're not too worried about that for the I time being. Seen, I have seen this. I have. Yeah. Um, okay, go on. Yeah. So they first meet this rowdy couple, one of whom is played by Chris Hemsworth, um, who he doesn't really do much except get his body out, to be honest. Um, but anyway, so they, the this couple with Chris Hemsworth, it seemed quite likely candidates to be the killers. Um, but they kind of move on and then they end up on the road with this ex-Special Forces guy played by Timothy Oliphant and his, uh, shall we say, uncultured girlfriend, and suddenly it's like, whoa, these guys could be killers as well, to be honest. So the film spends most of its two thirds building up these different characters uh, with lots of, sort of scenes of mounting tension as they walk through 
the uh, mountains, uh, mountain paths and that. And there's a lot of tension particularly between the men because Oliphant's character is such an alpha male and he's constantly testing Steve Zahn, who is a bit of a nervous wreck. There's kind of, I felt there's a bit... torturing him by Timothy Oliphant showing him his CV and then saying to Steve Zahn, come on, let me see yours after 2001 again. We could all do with a laugh. Steve Zahn just says, look, I'm just going to say three words to you. Die hard (laughs) 4.0. Which Um, is probably more than three words. Possibly more than three words if you say it out loud, but if you write it down. Right. <laughs> I'm going to write down three words, two words and a number. I'm going to write down three words, but when you read them out, it'll be more than three words. Okay. <laughs> God, what a what a what a exchange that was in yeah, the movie. Touche. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, and that kind of uh, rivalry thing going on there, or basically Oliphant kind of goading him, really, is a. It feels a bit like kind of the straw dogs. Thing where Steve Zahn is kind of a bit weedy, uh, even though he's quite buff. But anyway, but he's he's really trying to kind of puff his chest out in the face of what is obviously a much more um, threatening masculine uh, kind of uh, dude like in front of him. And so yeah, so that's quite a bit of fun. And the writing is it's quite sharp, quite amusing, and the performances are pretty good. I don't think that Timothy Oliphant is a very versatile actor, but he has that kind of intense and slightly mean looking stare, which which makes his intentions very hard to read. And so I think it works really well in this film. He is a lovely man. Um, I listened to an yeah. interview with Mark Maron. He's such a lovely, humble man. And it made me love him even more because I liked him in the Santa Clarita diet. Yes, right. I think the reason I like him is 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 from comedy. So I might rewatch this because now that I I'm falling in love with him, I might yes. uh, reassess his past. It's nice when you know that they are a good a good guy because then it's yeah. like oh okay oh that makes me yes that makes me more inclined towards yes giving them the benefit of the doubt. But yes, uh, there are lots of, there are twists later on as you I'm sure you remember and things get extremely silly towards the end, including one of the most ridiculously protracted flashback sequences I think I've ever seen. It just goes on for, it goes on for about 20 minutes. But anyway. Vietnam as well. <laughs> Bloody hell. Um, <laughs> so when it all kicks off, uh, David Tui, you know, he just goes, he, he butchers the frame. Everything goes, he, he, there's slow motion, there's split screen, <laughs> there's everything. There's split there's, screen! Yeah. Oh my God! <laughs> about. Um, I, I do like how the film is in touch with its own absurdity because I think a lot of the times these sorts of films specifically where it's about kind of psychological torture and tension can they can be quite oppressively grim and they can turn into kind of survivalist misery fests really and you know you get all that kind of distraught weeping faces and like desperately binding grubby wounds but doesn't really happen in this to be honest it just kicks off and it goes all kind of actiony towards the end and the focus is really on more of the fun and there's a it's got a kind of wicked sense of humor and in the end it turns out to be weirdly wholesome which is quite nice so i wouldn't say it's amazing but it was surprisingly decent and solidly directed good performances knowingly silly 
but also it has a good handle on the tension side of things. Which so. is something that you can't say about many films made in the 2000s, where you, in terms of like these action thrillers or mystery thrillers, that is good. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how well it did at the time, whether audiences were in the mood for it. But I yeah. don't think I've ever heard anyone ever talk about it apart from you then, so I don't think no. it did well. I think I did watch a trailer for it, and it does make it look like... I, I get the sense that they weren't sure how to market it because it's not a big action thriller, but of course the trailer makes it look like it's like just wall to wall. I was going to say, right. I know it's set in like a sort of jungly lush sort of thing. Does the trailer show someone jumping off a cliff into some water? I think so. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, there, yeah. But yeah, it's not <laughs> a movie. It's much more, character driven it's much the the best scenes are really the ones where it's like you it, it's like a power struggle especially between men uh, and they they're the best observed and best performed scenes yeah so it's decent that's what i'm gonna watch is it on oh did you say shudder i did okay i'll see what i can do <laughs> i'll see what i can weave um uh, so this is my last film, and this is a film from 1978 starring Richard Crenna called The Evil. Is this a film that you are familiar with, Rupert? It is not. You should be, because it's brilliant. Is so, it? yeah, well, I, I will say, I will say that it's, it's, I love this film for reasons that are very specific to me and my own tastes. So, this uh, Richard Crenna, best known as Colonel Troutman from the, the Rambo films, uh, turns up with his screaming hot wife, who's clearly 20 years plus younger than him, because uh, he's 52 at this point, uh, in, into this. He's uh, a doctor who's trying to run a sort of drug rehabilitation center. And he turns up to this palatial sort of hard, dark wood, um, abandoned sort of mansion which at one point they say has 200 rooms. It's big. That would take some polishing. 200? 200 rooms. Is that including, like, cupboards and stuff? (laughs) Drawers in the kitchen. Uh, (laughs) It opens like a cutlery drawer. goes, yeah, there's a bedroom, look. Uh, There's a bedroom for Warwick Davis, look. There's a bedroom for Stuart. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so it is really funny, actually, because... I don't. Want, I know it's over. I know it's over. Like well over twenty years. It's nineteen seventy-eight. But there was a bit of the start where the initial kill is of a handy. You don't know why he's there. It just shows this old bloke who's you know some old janitor talking to himself. And it turns out like ten minutes later, you find out that the the estate agent. This house has been abandoned for decades. The estate agent has basically got this bloke called Sam to go in and like clean up the house. So when Richard Craner turns up, it looks decent and he's more likely to take it. But what you see at the opening thing is him walking in there. He walks into this house, right? The opening room is like it, it's hundreds of square feet. It's like the, the the ceiling is like twelve feet up. It's a huge like double staircase, two hundred rooms, and he rocks up with like a cloth. Uh, like a hammer, a torch, and just a single like wicker broom, and just start sweeping the floor. I thought the cobwebs are thick. You are not going to clean this up by the time Richie Craner turns up tomorrow morning. Um, so that made me laugh. Um, and yeah, and the film sort of 
Richard Crowder says, oh, you know, this is really good. Why is it so cheap? And the estate agent says, pardon, it did catch me said then. And Richard Crowder says, ah, never mind. Let's just move in and hope that Satan doesn't live in the basement under a bunker that has been sealed with an iron cross. And convenient. Lo, lo and behold, Rupert. <laughs> so, yeah, so the film is, uh, it's effectively them in this house. They, they free this titular evil. And, and it's just how the evil attacks them and yeah. how they sort of survive it and try to stop it it's very it's 1978 so it's now it's kind of a little bit hokey but absolutely loved it um because richard Krenner has got a face that i just like looking at uh, like i really really like looking at his face he had a nice big beard in this and uh, of course i love wearing flares and flowery shirts and my mm-hmm. god Oh, I every every time someone's introduced, I said, "Oh, look at you, you beauty!" It was just like these <laughs> cavernous brown flares with like collars that literally, if there was a gust of wind, they could take flight. With corduroy jackets over the top, I was drinking in every frame, and um, there's and there's just other little things to to love as well. Like at the start, uh, the name Andrew Prine, I recognise the name, but I don't know from what. He he's uh, he plays like a he's he's like a cool kind of teacher. You see him and he's helping Richard Krenner uh, renovate this house. And you, you see him and he's like a cool lecturer, like down with the kids. And he's wearing his massive flowery college shirt. And then after the, his class is dismissed, his class of like seventeen-year-olds, like woman comes up to him and he just starts really passionately kissing her. And it turns out she's a student and he's just uh, he's just a lecturer, just just shagging his student uh, nothing nothing is made of it he's clearly 40 <laughs> she's clearly 30 in an 18 and they're just walking down the thing walking back to the teachers they're snogging he's slapping her ass i thought i don't think that would fly now to be honest i don't think i don't think a 40 year old man taking advantage of a 17 year old would be would be ideal but no it's never mentioned it's never referred to as anything other than purely wholesome ah, different um, times <laughs> um so when they turn up to this house um it's the, the special effects are brilliant because this this evil this initially invisible evil evil is is just shown by just wind machines being turned up and then oh the camera just shaking and people falling downstairs it's really like low brilliant. low tech and there's just there's a really nice shot at the start when they're moving into this house and the, the Richard Crenna's wife Caroline this there's like these sort of um, gargoyle like wooden gargoyles above this, this fireplace. Uh, and one of them just turns to look at her, and and she's really shocked, obviously, because it just clearly turns to look at her. And then Richard Crenna walks in and says, oh, "What's wrong, darling?" And she, it's really subtle, but the way she reacts t- to thinking, did, "Did I just see that?" And then mm. and then kind of dismissing it is actually like really nicely done. It was really mm. weirdly believable, and I really liked that because it wasn't silly. She starts seeing this. It's effectively just like a light that she that is following her around, and. There's, yeah, the last thing I'll say is there's um, <laughs> the the bit where she follows the light into this room, right? So she follows this light down the stairs into a room at the start, and there's a book there, a big thick book uh, that the owner of the house, I think his name is Vargas, had written, and it mm. has one paragraph in this huge tome that just says basically Satan's in the cellar. Don't move that cross for fuck's sake. Um, and she walks in the fireplace bursts into life she sees a ghost pointing at the book she reads it and then it like obviously she sees a ghost nod at her and say yes that's right don't go into the cellar get out as fast as you can Richard Craner walks in and says oh you've got the fire going and she says oh I must have (laughs) 
And <laughs> now I thought, hang on, you glossed over a bit there, glossed over some stuff that is quite quite important, and it really tickled me. And then the film just gets sillier and sillier as it goes on. It's one of those films where this house is absolutely massive, and this is the other thing that really drew me to it, is every time I see a film that's set in a house, it, you, it, um, for a start, it does this really good thing of giving you a, a mental layout of the geography. There's really nice camera angles, so you know exactly where everyone is in relation to everyone else. The rooms are very distinctive, so you're completely on board with it. And um, whenever I watch these films and someone's in it, it's all set in a big house, all I think about is, oh, that will be my games room. Yeah, and I have kids in there. And then, they, and then they go to another bigger room and I think, oh, no, 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 this would be the games room. The other one would be the snooker room. I love it. And it was... You got 200 was... to choose from, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, every room, just repeating myself. Um, yeah, I really liked it. I found it really charming. It's really bloodless and everyone basically has the same death sequence. Uh, and I just like looking at Richard Crenna and the film ends so, so abruptly as well. Absolutely, I won't give it away. In the end, it's just like right. That's it. Then off we trot. Boom. I, I love it when you get those older films where it ends so abruptly that literally the credits start rolling before before it even fades out or anything. It's just oh, credits. They're coming up the yeah. screen. There's still yeah, people when, on there. There's still people well, acting. Like, there's still people acting. Credits coming up. And I'm like, oh, well, well, that's that then. <laughs> <laughs> off we trot. Yeah. Um, it's yes. like they've ran out of time. But uh, yeah, the evil. Or like, not the run of time, but like the guy who does the credits, like, oh, like I'm bored now. I'm just going to shut you <laughs> on. Um, yeah, the evil starring Richard Crenn in 1978. Absolutely brilliant. Loved it. Mainly. What's that? Where, where is that? Prime? Amazon Prime, yeah. Good. That's the music on the is so loud. It's like a jet engine. It's this constant squealing theremins. I was sitting there at one point. Good wincing and i didn't realize how loud the music was till the film ended and i thought and it was really dead silent in my bedroom i thought bloody hell that was must have been booming loud at one in the morning good uh, so yeah the evil classic andrew prine is still alive by the way really yeah he was, he was yeah. only like 40 in that and he would have been like what yeah. in the seven he because I, I brought up his wikipedia page just to see his face i, I recognize his face but interestingly he was married to this woman he's been married well, several times, but he was married to this one woman three times, the same woman three times, married 65, divorced 66, <sighs> married her again in 68, divorced in 69, married her again in 1973, and finally divorced in 1978. <laughs> <laughs> they what? just need to make other minds, don't they? Yeah, just say, so, oh, look, we, I mean, I like your bum, but when you open your mouth, things got to part, love. <laughs> And he's like, oh, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, weird <laughs> wedding vows they were. <laughs> but uh, I, well, I, the film I will talk about next then is that it sounds not unlike what you've just described, The Evil. I'm going to talk about The Evil 2. <laughs> um, it's called The Evil Dead. No, it's called The Changeling. And this is on Shudder as well. And so this is a very well regarded supernatural horror film um it was made in i think it was made in 79 maybe released in 80. it was directed by a, a guy called peter medak he's just a journeyman director he'd gone to make stuff like the craze and species too so uh george c scott george oh, okay. c scott who isn't actually that old when this was made i think he was only in his mid-50s but he could be 70. he plays he plays like a father of this wife and daughter and i kept just thinking you are 
a granddad surely but anyway he was so they are his wife and daughter are killed in a freak road accident basically in his grief um george c scott retires to this old mansion to work on his um he's a composer so he works at his piano um as coincidence would have it and there are many coincidences in this film it turns out that a child was killed in this house years ago and the ghost is trying to communicate so George C. Scott, he devotes himself to uncovering the mystery of the dead child and the conspiracy behind it, sort of in order to bring peace to not only the spirit, but also to himself. Um, so now horror, this was late 70s. Horror was changing around this time. We know this because you had films like Halloween and Alien, which obviously at that time totally changed the idea of what horror films could be. The Changeling is not one of those films and it is very much firmly old-fashioned it's character driven it's slow burn it's mystery horror as much mystery as it is horror basically and the kind of these are good things by the way the scares in inverted commas are of the subtle and eerie variety and to be honest mostly they are achieved through sound design so you get kind of distant wailing voices Thumping in the night, uh, banging doors, self-playing pianos, doors creaking open and stuff. There is also one of it's also this vague plaintive voice of the ghost, which starts off as creepy, but by the end, it's literally just saying stuff to explain the plot to you. <laughs> it's it's saying it will it will say something like the medallion give it to whoever and it's like <laughs> to this okay. person. So, all right, I'll do that then. It's like, all right, you don't need give to... the medallion to Andrew Prine. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> some of the clothes that George C. Scott wears in this film. He he dressed the thing is he's only in his mid fifties, but he dresses like an old man's <laughs> At one point, he wears like baggy, stonewash, like workers' jeans <laughs> under under a knit, knitted jumper. But the stonewash jeans, they're turned up at the bottom. So you've got the kind of slightly darker jeans, but really pale turn ups at the bottom, like showing a bit of sock. And he's wearing polished brown brogues as well. It's like amazing. His feet on the floor and this old mansion on these floorboards just. <laughs> <laughs> you reminded me of I was playing what was it? This is really quickly. I was playing um oh god, oh Ghost Recon Wildlands with my brother the other day. And there was there's obviously it's just like a you know an open world Ubisoft sort of game. And there's a bit where I saw a guy who had just who had been hung in a like a lift shaft. And you're supposed to just like glance up, think, oh, this is dangerous. People have been hanging you, and then move on and do some more shooting. And I looked at this character that was hanging and I thought he is wearing um like like a white like slightly oversized like button-up work shirt tucked in to brown jogging bombs that have had the bottoms pulled up a bit and then he's just wearing like black office shoes why would why would he be wearing those clothes if he's worked in a mine i've never seen anyone tuck in uh, like a button shirt into jogging bombs by the way and then yank them up anyway sorry to interrupt <laughs> amazing uh yeah so the other i mentioned halloween and alien and stuff like that 
as films, which is just not like. But I should also mention Don't Look Now, which, lest we forget, was made a good seven years before this. And it had a very similar theme of a grieving parent. But it also did stuff, it, a, some stuff which was much more interesting and clever with that, I think, than this film does. Because in Don't Look Now, there's always a sense that Donald Sutherland's his conviction that he's seeing his dead daughter is simply his own dark, embittered new perception of the world. And that kind of ambiguous theme, it's, it's really baked into the plot of Don't Look Now. And of course, the deeper that his character goes into this unreality, the more dangerous reality becomes for him because there's actually a killer around. So the changeling is far more straightforwardly like supernatural. It doesn't even pretend to have any kind of ambiguity about that stuff. And I'm not sure that George C. Scott really sells the idea of this kind of abyss of bereavement that well, although it is mostly the script, which is so focused on the detective story aspect that it kind of forgets about the emotions a bit. He he does feel a little bit mis miscast because he, I don't know, he he does seem a lot older and tireder than his character's meant to be, I think. But anyway, um, so the thing is, the detective story part isn't even that good. He's working with this woman from the historical society, purely for exposition's sake, by the way. And his constant leaps in logic are absolutely ridiculous. Like, I mean, the revelation, the big kind of revelation is out of the bag. 20 minutes too early so the last part of the film there's no kind of urgency to it whatsoever it's very bizarre in its structure and i'd also say it's not a particularly scary film like it's nice that it takes the spiritual element kind of seriously um and there is a there is this kind of fairly intense seance scene i would say which is pretty full-on um but most of the horror is just it's pretty tame it is just mostly just noises and there is a self-driving wheelchair, which isn't exactly the scariest thing in the world. Um, but yeah, I, I think last episode we talked about James Wan quite a bit and I, and it's clear now that this is the kind of film he is riffing off. And I suppose the evil as well, this is the kind of film he's, he riffs off with his haunted house movies. Cause it's, it's like the house that harbors some terrible injustice, uh, from the past in the form of an angry spirit but yeah i i yeah i don't know with the changeling i i think i just found it a bit a bit stayed a bit brown a bit humorless um it felt pretty dated that's probably yeah where i come to it it felt like it if it if it had been made 10 20 years earlier i'd probably think Oh wow, this is really cool. This is really ahead of its time, like because there was um, there was a good film made in I think the early sixties called The Innocence, um, not The Innocence as in E N C E, but The Innocence as in Innocent S. So, which was again haunted house story, and kind of hokey in its own way, but had some good subtle scares, and that relied a lot on these kind of like very subtle tame scares bloodless scares but i kind of think well I look at something like that and i think well that is ahead of its time 
like that's really cool you can look you can watch that and think wow this is really cool for for when it was made but this i don't know it feels like horror it feels like a horror out of time okay because while you were ch- i've never heard about this when you said the changeling i initially thought it was that film with um angelina jolie from about 15, 10 years ago or something yeah, that is a different film because uh, uh, that is called changeling though isn't it yes that's called yeah. Changeling. Yeah, was um, it, yeah clint eastwood one wasn't it was it did she do it is... or did she direct it um but this is yeah this i was just looking at this because i'd never heard of this this particular the changeling and it's really well regarded as one of the best horrors Mm. of all time so i'm I'm surprised to hear you say it's old-fashioned but yeah i might watch this actually because it's you know i like watching them 70s horrors so yeah yeah maybe i just wasn't in the mood for i just felt a little bit just a little bit pedestrian and a little bit dull yeah but yeah i do like george c scott and of course you know, he brought Exodus three to life. So I'm trying to think what I would know him from. I know the name. But, He's in Doctor um, Strange Love. He was very funny in that. But um, that's another film I've never seen. Really, I should watch that. Hmm. Yes, you should. Um, oh. I'm out out of films, by the way. So feel free to just uh, truck on. All right. I'll. Uh, I've got a couple more. So I'll just. Um, I'll talk about. Well, it's an opportunity for us to talk about found footage again. Oh, nice. VHS. <laughs> VHS made on, uh, sorry, it's, it's available on Shudder, um, and this was uh, it was made in 2012, which may be surprising given that it's literally called VHS. But <laughs> it's an anthology of found footage horror movies. There are four short films, and they're does it stand for various horror stories? Then, oh, that could genuinely be true. Um, but yeah, they are all kind of filmed on vhs i guess um so they they have four short films and then framed within a fifth film uh which is directed by adam wingard of the guest and your next fame um so the five stories are very quickly just run through them uh first one uh is a, a bunch of criminals break into a house to steal a tape and find a dead guy in there the second one a trio of dudes uh bring uh, a lady back from a bar and then find out she's a bloodthirsty vampire. Uh, third one, a couple stay in a motel and she's murdered and he is murdered by an intruder. Uh, fourth one, some friends go to a lake and they're killed by who knows what. It's like a weird glitch monster. I'll explain that in a minute. Um, and then finally, some dudes dress up for Halloween and discover a satanic ritual in an attic. So all of the films... It, it seemed to feature one or more irritating alpha males and the the prevalence of dude bros in these films the the sheer number of them and the sheer consistency of just idiotic men uh it makes me think we're not just we don't just want them to die we're actually meant to identify with them and i just found them annoying anyway uh-huh. the only exception to that is the the motel one which is called second honeymoon this it, but it's actually the most boring of the lot actually it's uh and it's directed by ty west who did house of the devil which is disappointing because that was a good film mm. yeah um so yeah the usual problems with found footage rear their head um they don't need to be found footage <laughs> well i was gonna say first and it's the aesthetic part of it because you got bad 
image quality you've got disoriented camera work you've got bad sound and yes the other problem being why is this being filmed or why is this being filmed in the first place and i'd say some of the stories handle that aspect better than others i mean in terms of the aesthetics the image quality is just horrible uh especially during the segment called tuesday the 17th which is the one where the friends goes to the lake and i mentioned that it's got this weird monster in it the monster when it appears on the screen literally makes the screen glitch out and go all pixelated so not only have you got kind of pretty low res um vhs footage but on top of that you've got this really annoying effect pixelation effect which uh, and then of course you've got the fact that they're running around and the camera's wobbling around just to make it even more incomprehensible ah. so it's pretty bad um i think the best segment is probably the last one um which is just called well it's got an american date system so it's 10 31 98 but of course it just means it's just 31st of um october so it's halloween so it's this is the one where the guys are dressed up um to go out to halloween and it's the only one that's really genuinely creepy rather than simply violent basically and it has a really cool haunted house vibe and it all kicks off and it's got these really cool special effects with um like these creepy arms reaching out the walls and so you and the whole house seems to be kind of alive and mutating so like they'll go towards a window and it will like suddenly um it will suddenly shrink until it's you can't get out of it sort of thing so it's like it's some cool like digital effects going on there but i mean you have to put up with two hours this is two hours long this anthology okay two hours of unintelligible (sighs) shouting and camera shaking and it's too little too late to be honest if found footage is your thing this may be a dream come true, but if you're looking for any kind of depth or humour or proper scares, look elsewhere. I think it's I, a lot. Like I, I like anthologies, but I like them when they they've got variety. You know, you know, like the old creep creep show one and two did this very well. Like where the stories are so different in style and tone, and I, I like that. And it it keeps things interesting. I think if you stick a load of very similar found footage horrors together so aesthetically they're the same uh tonally they're this they're the same they've even got a lot of the same idiotic dude bro characters then it's like well this is just like watching a really disjointed single feature which goes on for two hours and isn't very good so, <sighs> well that that's the funny. back of the case sorted then <laughs> <laughs> disjointed and not very good <sighs> my two knees uh, ladies and gentlemen, disjointed <laughs> <laughs> is the better one. <laughs> um, okay, uh, uh, yeah, uh, from me, I mean, I watch that and I think it's one of those things I chucked on uh, because there's a sequel, isn't there? Are you going to sit through the sequel? Yeah, I think there's two sequels. Bloody hell. I remember watching the first one and I remember liking the whole overarching thing of the, the dudes in the house and thinking, oh, it's got mm. a creepy setup. But again, I, I, I think I watched it on Halloween after a few drinks. Just it was on. I probably got distracted. And uh, yeah, I just remember watching it 
and thinking oh, I was okay because just because of my love for horror anthologies anyway. Yeah. But then I've never I've never revisited it, which is the most telling part to these kind of things, especially horror, which is like the most revisitable genre. Yeah, yeah. It's there is a sequ- I think the second one's meant to be a bit better, but then the third one's awful apparently. So yeah, so that's VHS and that's on Shudder. And I'll finish by talking about the Adams Family, nice. uh, which is on Netflix, I think. I recently watched the animated version, actually, because uh, yeah. that's the one which came out last year. It's okay. It's got some nice visual kind of nods to the old comic strip. <laughs> and there's some good dark humor near the start. But really, the over the overarching kind of message of the whole thing is it just ch- turns everything into a bit of a kind of bland compromise because it's all about accepting people's differences and learning from each other and it's like yeah it's okay let's move on it's a live action film this was made in 1991 and the story involves gomez played by raul julia brilliant pining for his lost brother who's lost uh, fester who was apparently lost in the bermuda triangle now gomez is oblivious to the fact that there are people after his wealth and so when Fester shows up on his doorstep, or seems to be Fester, by Christopher Lloyd. Uh, it takes Gomez a while to realise that this may be an imposter after his money. Anyway, Fester ingratiates himself with the family, and all the while, Fester is being manipulated by his adoptive mother to steal the treasure in the house. Of course, all of that plotting is really just narrative framing for what the film is really about which is depicting the day-to-day life of the Adams family really because it is a very thinly plotted film um because really it's enjoyment is in scene after scene of the Adams clan talking to each other and torturing each other really and the casting is perfect Angelica Houston as Morticia is amazing I love the fact that her face is constantly has a spotlight on it it's hilarious and Christina Ritchie as Wednesday uh, is superb and I th- her role is quite expanded in the sequel and it's no surprise really um so yeah she's really good. I noticed you haven't said anything about the guy who plays Bugsy Rube. I don't know no, if you want to <laughs> he's boring in every every version of Adam's family I've ever seen he's always been just no one <laughs> oh okay um I was watching this with uh, with my brother and and we wondered why it was that Wednesday was called Wednesday and we looked it up and apparently it's because um, I'm not sure where it comes from but Wednesday uh, like according according to legend Wednesday means day of woe so that's why she's called Wednesday um, which is interesting um, so basically yeah the whole film is a variation on a single joke essentially something horrible happens or someone is injured or insulted in some horrible way and rather than reacting kind of negatively the family member loves and admires the fact that it's happened and and it it never really gets old i've always been a bit confused by the kind of rules of all of this because of course how can you love the fact that your husband is completely miserable if love is in itself a positive emotion but i think all of that's part of the fun really and the production design is amazing. Unsurprisingly, Tim Burton was originally going to direct this, uh, and it shows. But it ended up going to Barry Sonnenfeld, who is now known for doing the Men in Black trilogy. 
Although I think his best work is probably a series of unfortunate events, which was on TV, the Lemony Snicket thing, which had the same kind of gothic majesty that you see in Adam's family. And I think he does a really good job. He keeps the focus on the characters and never gets kind of lost in the architecture and gothic design. And the attention to detail in every shot is just brilliant. You could pause it and see like little visual jokes everywhere. The script is very funny and very dry. It's definitely not for younger kids. And I mean, I remember loving it as a 10 year old when it first came out. Although yeah, this, was a, this was a film that um, my overarching memory of the Adams family was it was or possibly values was was the fact that it was they used to show it in my primary school and we'd all like sit in the hole and watch it. And awesome. I would have been like, what, when did it come out? 1992? Uh, 91. Yeah. 91. So, I'd, yeah, I would have been like eight. And I, yeah, I remember watching it. And even there, do you know when you're like you're watching a film and, you, and you're scared, but you're trying not to be scared because your friend's around. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I, yeah, I must have been, been a bit creepy for Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, absolutely. but yeah, and I remember, I remember loving it, but I guess in that's mostly for the visuals. Like I remember thinking, thing the hand the disembodied hand is such an amazing special effect and it still looks really cool uh but I, I never really appreciated back then just how horny morticia and gomez are for each other it's ridiculous they're all over each other it's hilarious just constantly like really suggestive um the school there's a school play scene which is amazing um that's really really funny and really just gr- grotesque i think it stands up really well um the only really dated part is that at the end there's some dodgy green screen where it goes with with the big kind of finale uh i look at you beetlejuice yeah it's not the best but that's the only real dodgy bit um yeah and it's 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 really good and surprisingly edgy and nasty and it's a a good family halloween film and i like how in a way that the the modern version doesn't it, it it doesn't end up compromising any of their completely messed up values by the end they're still just as messed up they've just brought more messed up people into the family good are you going to what you've made me really want to, i have not seen that film since i was about eight um i, know. I am going to and you'll watch that. it and you'll think you'll think i don't remember any of this plot at all <laughs> like i because i watched it loads as a kid but i like the the nuances of the plot absolutely no it must have completely passed me by yeah um with, are you going to watch the sequel because i yes. don't know if the sequel I, I remember because it's hilarious because that's the one where wednesday goes to summer camp and it's like really wholesome summer camp and she's just utterly depressed brilliant i'm gonna have to watch both of these it's gonna have to happen isn't it right then so uh I think that was that was a good session. Actually, we covered. I consider we had about two films, and they were both Bad Boys One twice. I think that we've uh, we've actually uh, covered it pretty well. So it's time for film of the podcast F O T P, and I'm looking at mine now. Obviously, you know, Madhouse and Dead Silence. You know, you, you covered those, so I won't go into that. Wishmaster was good. Um, Vengeance was generic. Bright was a precursor to something that will never be my third album dark man was a surprise but it's nice to find a film from the 70s and 80s that you've never seen and just think oh do you know what i really click with that so for me and again it's just because of the design just just the the, the deep woods of the house and the flares i'm going to say the evil and richard Crenner's uh, interesting face so that's my film of the podcast what about you well i really enjoyed orphan but 
I do think that, I mean, it's pretty well well known and well established, that one. Whereas Summer of 84, although it has its flaws, it's it seems like a bit a bit more of an unknown one. So I, I my film of the week would be Summer of 84. Nice. Especially if you are a fan of horror and synth music and yeah and it's something a little bit unexpected especially towards the end so i enjoyed that a lot all right then i shall uh, love you and leave you and uh, okay. i'll stop the recording bye bye <laughs>